Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. And please don't forget, there's a donate button at the top of the webpage. And there's actually some good news on the donation front. Uh, we had that $10,000 matching grant campaign and we matched it. And then once we matched it, uh, two other members uh, have now come up with $5,000 each. So now we got another $10,000 matching grant campaign. So it's kind of amazing, astounding to me, seeing as we kind of just got this uh, analysis.news going just a few months ago. So at any rate, if you'd like to donate, if you haven't already, you can donate at the top of the webpage. And remember, if it's a new monthly, the monthly is going to get timed 12. So it's like the equivalent of 12 donations will get matched. If you're already doing a monthly and you up it, uh, that will times 12 and get matched too. So hang on, be back in a second. The window, if there still is one, for effective action on the climate crisis is closing. As we look for solutions, the role of the industrial agriculture sector in contributing to the problem has often been overlooked by the focus on the need to eliminate the use of fossil fuels. Yet 25% of carbon emissions come from agriculture. At the same time, the soil upon which all agriculture is based has the ability to capture carbon. In fact, that's what makes it capable of growing food. So instead of being part of the problem, can soil be part of a solution? Now joining us is Larry Kopold. Larry is the founder and president of the Carbon Underground, an organization dedicated to promoting regenerative agriculture. He's been a communications and branding professional for over 25 years. He's worked at some of the top ad agencies. He's also been a lifelong environmentalist serving on the boards like Oceana, the National Marine Sanctuaries, 1% for the Planet and others. I'm going to ask him about that. And he's done environmental communications for the UN and the Olympics. And his work for the Earth Communications Office was seen in 100 countries by over a billion people. So thanks for joining us, Larry. It's great to be here. First of all, let's just to be clear with everybody. You're not a scientist, uh, but you're, you've been immersed in these issues. So to start with, tell us how you got involved in this. Well, it, it's actually pretty simple. So, so as you said, most of my background I spent in the business world, working for uh, very large companies like McDonald's and Nike and Coke. But at the same time, I've always been an environmentalist, really, really important to me. And, and I thought I knew something about climate change. And over 20 some odd years on the boards of big environmental organizations, I would talk about a couple of things relevant to this conversation. Number one, we got to reduce emissions or we'll never stop climate change. And oh, by the way, the, uh, the way we grow beef is probably the number one thing causing climate change when you look at all the different uh, aspects associated with it. And I had an awakening. Uh, in 2013, uh, I was on the board of Greenpeace, and, and we had had a, a meeting in Costa Rica for the board, and there was an update on climate change. And basically what the top climate scientists were saying at that time, many of them are still saying it, is, is we have 15 years left, game over, natural systems will snap, they won't go back. And if you uh, 
really want to spend the next few years, well, go do it with your family because you won't be able to do that pretty soon. And and that was sobering. And uh, and by the way, uh, a wonderful scientist, one of the authors of the IPCC study for the UN, uh, Thomas Garreau, when I asked him, what does that mean? Natural systems will snap. And he said, well, you know, imagine if the evaporation uh, system didn't work anymore over North America. And I said, well, everything would die. And he goes, yeah, yeah, stuff like that. So, so as scientists are want to do in that very serious tone. So, so I didn't know how to go home. I had a seven-year-old daughter at the time. I didn't know how to look her in the face. And, 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 and everybody left from the board. And I'm sitting there with my dear friend, Tom Newmark. And we start talking about this. And he, who is, it was also a businessman, but, but uh, uh, botany was his big hobby. Newmark had started some kind of uh, natural vitamins business and then sold it for a significant amount of money. Yeah. He, he was the CEO of New Chapter, which was the largest uh, uh, organic, certainly uh, vitamin company in the world, sold it to Procter & Gamble a few years ago. And, and Tom said, well, there is this other data percolating up around the world that shows a relationship between soil health and climate change. And he talked to me about it. And, and I had the reaction everybody has when they learn about it, which is it's too good to be true. It's impossible. But I started reading this data coming out. And the result of that was he and I started the Carbon Underground. So let me go back and explain what we were starting to hear from around the world. So I talked earlier about the need to reduce emissions to reverse climate change. I now believe to my core, and it's because the scientists at NOAA and, and the UN and Stephen Chu, the former uh, Secretary of Energy, who won a Nobel Prize in this, have all said the same thing, which is if we reduce emissions to zero today, we wave a magic wand, no more emissions, none. Cows don't fart. They, none of this. They don't belch. You know, there's no more cars. There's nothing out there. Uh, the, the, the climate will continue to degrade for probably a millennium until it starts to heal. And that's because of the legacy carbon that's already up in the atmosphere. So the real thing we have to deal with if we want to solve climate change is drawing down that legacy carbon, which is what got us into doing what we're doing today. So, so and that's not to say reducing emissions is not critical. Of course it is. You don't keep digging the hole when you're trying to get out of it. But, but the, there is a thing called the, the carbon lag. So when we emit carbon and greenhouse gases today, it typically can take 35 to 50 years for it to reach the atmosphere and start causing damage. So that means the climate change that we're experiencing today was a gift from our grandparents. Most carbon has been emitted in our lifetime, and it hasn't even gotten up there and done its damage yet. So if you really want to get serious about climate change, this is what you have to look at. <clears throat> So let's go back to botany. Turns out that the way the carbon cycle is kept healthy by nature and has since the beginning is photosynthesis. Larry, Larry before, before we get into all this, 
uh, which yeah, okay. we're going to. It's the majority of what we're going to talk about. I just want to get back to your motivation because, you know, you're at Coke, you're dealing with guys of these big brands, you're involved in this organization, 1% for the planet. You're, you're, you know a lot of people in, in the elites. I'm doing quote unquote, mm -hmm. but there's no quote unquote. They're the elites. Um, why isn't there more sense of urgency from the preponderance of the elites? I know there's some individuals that are, that are active and that get the seriousness. But if you yeah. talk about, like, if you look at, you know, the financial sector, you know, they can blab about it, but they certainly don't do anything effective about it. Uh, the, the sections of the elites that really have influence over the over government, over policy, uh, they they put very, very little to no pressure on government to get serious. And, and in fact, they resist any kind of uh, government intervention, really. Uh, and I don't, I don't know what you think, but I can't imagine how anything transformative happens without uh, the role of government in this. So why aren't these guys uh, more <laughs> terrified the way we are? Well, you know, my, 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 the answer I want to come out with is you really need to ask them because, and I have asked them, by the way, I don't understand. They live in the same world that we do. They have children or grandchildren like many of us do. And, it, you know, maybe they've lived their life on a relatively healthy planet, but they're handing their kids a, a planet in, in utter decay and, and very terrifying what's happening. And, and so I can't give you the answer. I've tried to get it. I think, I think the good news is more and more and more of them. And in fact, you, you mentioned the financial industry, more and more of leaders in industry in general are getting real serious with the things they control, and that can be their company, their supply chain, or the government that they control. And, and you know, I, because I think it was okay for a while to sit there and say climate change is this thing. It's over here. It's kind of amorphous. It's the frog in the water thing. But, you know, all of a sudden, climate change is affecting them. Climate change is, is you know, destroying our health. Climate change is destroying the supply chain in the biggest industry in the world, the food industry, and the third largest industry in the world, the, the uh, apparel and textile industry. So now it's hitting them in a very different way. And, and so I do believe that you're seeing really in the last couple of years, a, a change with a lot of people. I'm not going to sit there and say that, that, that there aren't billionaires out there that are just so greedy that just need to make so much money that 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 they're that's all that drives them planet be damned or or in the case of ones that we all know who who are the ones that are putting tons of money into getting us to mars well then let me rephrase that getting them to mars right we're not going with them on that journey so so if you have a mindset that i can have a farm here and it's going to produce all the food I need for my family. And I don't have to do it. I'll hire people to do it. And oh, by the way, I've got my own security force. So when, you know, they come to burn them at the stake, uh, they're not going to be able to get to them. And it, and it will come if we continue destroying the planet and destroying people's ability to take care of their family and income inequality. And all of this is going to come tumbling down. You know, there's a, <clears throat> a wonderful phrase. The, the, the food equals peace. 
Well, the lack of food then equals violence. And, and right now, before COVID, you had 700 million people on earth with food insecurity. All they know right now is it's out of control, but they don't really have new measurements. They know how fast it's growing. But, but so, so I don't know. Do they really think they're going to live in their castles and, and, and be so sequestered from it? I think some of them still do. And I think some of them are becoming uh, uh, really wonderful supporters in trying to create change, whatever their motive, making their business, make more money, survive doing the right thing, whatever it is, I think it's hard to ignore at this point. So so um, I'm a little more hopeful in that than I used to be. So then the question becomes, what change is actually effective and what just sounds good? Uh, like when I look at the Biden climate plan, at least the one that's on the website, uh, who, we'll see what it really amounts to once assuming he takes office and Kerry gets going. It's very, very, almost entirely, really, dependent on carbon capture. Uh, there's very little talk of phasing out fossil fuel. Uh, Biden says, has said, well, over decades and so on. Um, so, I mean, as far as I understand it, we don't have decades and decades to phase out fossil fuel. And then two, carbon capture can mean different things. And, and one of the things carbon capture can mean is some magic technology is going to appear that sucks it out of the air, and then we don't actually have to phase out fossil fuel, or we can take a, a century to do it. I mean, there's even a famous economist that says we have 100 years to figure this out, um, this guy Nordhaus. Um, so, so talk a bit about that, and then we'll get to what you're talking about, which isn't some high-tech solution to, of carbon capture, but something more natural. But first talk about the focus on, on high tech, which seems to be a way to avoid dealing with phasing out fossil fuel, and at least so far seems completely fantastical because there actually isn't any high tech that's going to do it. Well, I, we're on the same side of that discussion. Um, I, I'm not a believer in geoengineering our way to a sustainable planet. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of people would like to say somebody else will fix this. A lot of people will, would like to say technology will fix this. It takes me off the hook, right? That, you know, I'm optimistic because technology will solve it. Well, you know, a couple of years ago, I switched from being, uh, my title was chief economist at my old communications company. We worked a lot on social change. I'm sorry, chief optimist. I said, I was chief optimist. And I was reading an interview. <laughs> That's a difference there. A little difference, a little difference. Because if you're an economist, you're not going to be too much of an optimist. Go on. This is, this is absolutely true. So I was chief optimist. And I was reading an interview with Frances LePay. And she said, she was talking about all the problems with, with climate and food and all, of, all these things. And they said, how are you optimistic? And she said, I, I'm not an optimist. I'm a possibilist. And I, I've thought a lot about that. And if you're an optimist, that's all based on hope. And if you are a possibilist, you have a sense of responsibility to make it happen. This is what's possible, but it's not just going to happen on its own. So what is my role in that? 
So, so, you know, I think, and, and, you know, we have discussions almost every day of the week on new technologies and some of them are going to be critically important, but when it comes to carbon, uh, so far, and there's been billions of dollars invested in it. And, and in theory, there's a lot of products that can pull carbon out of the atmosphere and make it into cement or, or, or diamonds or, or, you know, I've told my wife, I want to be cremated and be made into dishes. You know, you can do whatever you want with it. But, but for me, number one, it's, obscenely expensive uh, and the amount of machines that would be necessary around the world is a staggering number talk about blight uh, it raises the unintended consequences question all the time so so carbon is the basis of life on earth right we're all carbon-based living organisms what happens when we pull all of this carbon out of the carbon cycle unnaturally, right? We have a machine that sucks it out of the cycle and, and turns it into cement. Maybe nothing. Assuming there even is such a machine, but go on. Well, well, uh, there are. Uh, and they can, they can scrub carbon out of the atmosphere. But again, you know, they're, they're the size of a three-story building. We would need hundreds of thousands of these. When, to, to your earlier comment, nature is literally dying to do this for us. So I'm not sure why we would do that. You know, if you, if you look at why this planet is in the, the, the frightening condition it's in, you have to go back to the Industrial Revolution, right? Late 1700s, it really kicked in. And it, it was based on the industrialization of two things, energy and food. And, and it gave us a run of progress that we'd never seen before. But then all of a sudden in the, you know, 1969, we went to the moon. And in 1970, somebody said, there's this thing called global warming that could kill us all. That's how fast stuff flips from the positive to the frightening. And so that's based on the unintended consequences of industrializing energy production. We now know all about that and food production, which we're just beginning to understand. So, so in the past couple of decades, we've looked at new energy sources that are clean, that are renewable, that nature supplies for us. And, and we all know what's happened in that world. It's now cheaper to get solar you know, energy or wind energy almost anywhere than it is to get coal or, or a fossil fuel type of energy. And, and, and it's clean. And, it's, it, and so, you know, right now we're producing more new energy from renewable sources than we are from existing sources. And that's without the giant subsidies that the fossil fuel uh, companies continue to get. You know, you can throw nuclear in there, but if you pull the trillions of dollars worth of subsidies in uh, everything from the, the, the building of the plants to the uh, taxpayers going on the hook for insuring against any consequences from a, a meltdown or a breakdown, 
they wouldn't be around today. So, so moving to re- renewable energy is really not only a solution, but if you look at industry, 93 of the Fortune 100 have invested more than seven figures in renewable energy. They didn't do that to fight climate change. They did it because it has a return. It's a good investment for their company that also will help the climate. So what what we got excited about is looking at the other half of the Industrial Revolution. Let's look at that food production. We haven't done anything, and we've scaled it and scaled it and scaled it into massive industrial uh, crop farms and feedlots, you know, where, you know, today we have, we have more chickens in more feedlots than we have wild birds on earth, you know, and they're being raised, you know, with this much space. And, and, and so, so what has been the unintended consequences of that? And, you know, another expression I love is that uh, ignorance ends today and negligence starts tomorrow. We're in the negligence part because we know all of this stuff now. So so if the two things that have powered the progress of the last 150 or 200 years, which has been just astonishingly wonderful in many regards, but if those two things can be turned around where we can still produce the scale that we need of energy and food, but do it in a way where we're removing the unintended consequences and in the case of food, because you grow food, has the chance to heal some of the damage we've done. A solar panel doesn't heal the damage fossil fuels have done, but regenerative food can do that. So, so kind of a long answer. But that's, that's why we look at, at geoengineering and technology as, as uh, a frighteningly high-risk proposition uh, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't, maybe it'll work, but I don't know if you ever saw the movie Snowpiercer, uh, and it's about exactly this. It was done by the same director who won the Academy Award for Best Picture this year, and it's all about geoengineering to stop climate change, and you know what? We didn't know about this one thing, and the planet froze. Killed everybody on the planet, and I'm not giving away the end. That's what the movie's about, but, but, but we don't know that that's not going to happen. And, and uh, you know, again, we have board members who are very, very much into supporting geoengineering solutions. And, and we don't tell anybody, don't pursue them, don't look at it. We are desperate. You know, I, I say all the time, I've lost the ability to be a purist. I can't do that anymore because, because we don't have enough time. That window that you talked about closing is closing. <laughs> Let's talk about what what it is. So give us the basics. What is regenerative agriculture? What is it you're promoting, advocating? Simplest definition, regenerative agriculture is, is growing food in a way that works with nature instead of against nature. Seems common sense that you would want to do that, but that's not what we do. And I think you know, we all know that industrial agriculture doesn't do that. Um, industrial agriculture by, by and, and I guess I, I need to get into the quick science lesson here a little bit. So 
climate change is caused because we have too much carbon and greenhouse gases in our atmosphere. And, and what nature uses to make sure that doesn't happen is a tool called photosynthesis. We all know about it. What we've forgotten since third grade when we learned about it is that when the molecule of CO2 is broken and the oxygen stays up in the atmosphere, we get to breathe. And the trees take the carbon. Well, the plants take the carbon. All plants take the carbon. And they, they, they take it down and they turn it into a carbohydrate and they use whatever they need. And the rest of it exudes down through the root system to feed all of the microorganisms in the soil. And there's a lot of them. In a teaspoon of healthy soil, there are more living things than all the human beings on earth. In a teaspoon. And what do every single one of them need? Carbon. So photosynthesis pulls carbon from the atmosphere, puts it back into the ground where it feeds all of these microorganisms that keep the soil healthy, keep the climate and carbon uh, uh, cycles healthy. But we kill those organisms all over the world. We have plowed up the land, which churns them and exposes them to the air and the sunlight, and they die, and they're carbon, so they evaporate up uh, into the atmosphere. Uh, we have put chemicals on them that have killed them. And we do that all the time, you know, whether it's uh, 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 synthetic additives of pesticides or food or whatever, but we're killing uh, 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 the microorganisms. And the ones that survive, who typically will say to a plant, you know what, I have extra nitrogen and I will trade you for some carbon if you'll bring it down from the atmosphere. But when you put all these synthetic uh, uh, ingredients like nitrogen into the soil, the plant says, I've already got it. I don't need it from you. So I'm going to leave all that carbon up there, not bringing it down anymore. That's really why we have climate change. So, so the good news is we can take the billions of acres of farmland, arable farming and grazing land around the world and restore that soil. And, and by the way, you can do it really quickly. Uh, and very inexpensively, and and typically, and there's now you know a thousand different studies around the world. I'm making that number up, but there's a lot of studies that show you can restore the land. That show that carbon will come down, depending on the study, anywhere from you're going to pull down a, a, a ton and a half to 40 tons of carbon per acre per year. Now, remember, I said we have 5 billion acres. That's a lot of carbon being drawn back down. That's the potential that we have. Okay, let me just, let me just ask, clarify something. Uh, there's no suggestion in what you're saying that there is a, there's no need to phase out fossil fuel. My understanding, uh, the amount of carbon that comes from agriculture is about 25% of total carbon. So it's a very significant piece of the carbon picture, but it's not by any means does it surpass the fossil fuel picture. And I think earlier you said cows are one of the most important factors. I think it's important, but they're about 4% of carbon. Isn't that right? It's not, which is significant, but it's not. Correct. So let me it's, not more, it's not more than coal and oil and gas and so on. No, but 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 greenhouse gases, especially methane, uh, 
have a much stronger ability to destroy the atmosphere than carbon does. So, so it's not a simple answer. Let me take your first question first, which is the fossil fuel question. Yeah, sure. There, there are people who will come at anybody talking about uh, regenerative agriculture or any natural solutions to solving climate change and says, and ask us if we're just giving a pass to the fossil fuel industries. No, we're not. We believe we should phase them out as quickly as possible. And, and there are reasons for that beyond climate change. They're full of carcinogens. They destroy the land. There's a whole lot of reasons. They, they, they destroy indigenous populations. And, 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 you know, poor people are often poisoned because they're near the plants where the fossil fuels are being processed. So there are a lot of reasons to stop burning fossil fuels yesterday. And, and so we're not giving a pass to anybody. As I said earlier, you know, even in climate change, the, you, don't, you don't fill a hole by digging yourself deeper. And, and so we don't want to do that. That being said, we can sequester enough carbon to offset the emissions. So, so that's really good news. You know, it's hopeful news and it's possible to go back to that. You're saying, well, it's a little, are you, I'm not sure what you're saying. The emissions can't continue because the issue is what yeah. you said earlier, right. is that even if you stop them today, you still have to get some carbon out of the, out of the atmosphere. But Correct. you're not suggesting regenerative agriculture and continuing fossil fuel. You can't get that much. You're not going to get... No, no, no. no. Yeah. It's the opposite. I, I, yeah. I, I meant to communicate just the opposite. No, we have to get off fossil fuels. Period. Right. Okay. End of story. Okay, now let's there's, move... There's absolutely no rationale for, for staying on. No. Okay. Health, so let, business... Let's, yeah. Okay, let's start from there. So fossil fuels... Okay. The strategy is get off them. There's no such carbon capture that allows the continuation of fossil fuel. we got to get off it as quickly as we can transition to renewable energy or, yes, the, or, la, or less use of energy. Okay, let's just park that yeah. over there. Okay, now well, let's get but to... Even if, but I just on. want to make a point. Yeah. Even if there was some great geoengineering that can pull that those fossil fuel emissions out of the atmosphere... We're still breathing them while they're up there. They're still causing cancer and asthma and other problems. So, so you know, I just want to make the case. These are bad things. Maybe we didn't know it 200 years ago. That was the, that was the ignorance stage. Now we're in the somewhat generous to call it negligence stage. But, but we do. We have to get, we have to stop. Because even if you phased out fossil fuel uh, today, tomorrow which ain't happening, but for the sake of argument. It's not just about cleaning what's already in the atmosphere, but if you don't change the way agriculture is done, you're still putting that 25% up. And, and we're at such a critical tipping point now, you can't have that 25% go up either. So the issue of dealing with that 25% is as critical as fossil fuel. So now we're going to talk about Explain in more specifically, how does regenerative agriculture look? What, what, what happens? What does it actually look like? So first, I want to thank you for acknowledging that, that at least 25, and it's probably more, but at least 25% of, 
of harmful emissions harming climate uh, come from food production. It's almost never discussed in the equation of reducing emissions. So first, I want to thank you for making well, sure that's and why and why we're doing the interview. <laughs> well, okay, there you go. So, so I want to go back to those microorganisms that are all sitting there saying, I need carbon, I need carbon, I need carbon. If we can restore them, which we can, quite simply, quite naturally, the land comes back, it becomes productive on its own, and, and photosynthesis gets ramped back up by nature, and it starts pulling legacy carbon back down through the trees to exude into the soil. So it literally reduces, and as I said, you know, we're talking about the potential of billions of tons of drawdown, and we need many billions of tons of drawdown to, to get us there. But if, if, we can, if we can start pulling carbon at a decent scale out of the atmosphere, and again, I keep saying which we can, we can get into that, but, but if we can do that, what we're doing is we're taking that window that we keep talking about closing, and we're putting a piece of wood there to stop it from closing while we, as a society, transition to a carbon neutral society. So, so that's, you know, the best way, most realistic way of looking at this is it slows down the rate of it's getting worse to the point of, okay, we're holding our own and now it's going to start getting better. So, so, you know, every ton of carbon that we draw down from the atmosphere uh, relieves the pressure a little bit. Okay, what's it look like? What is it? What is it exactly? What is what does it look like when farmers are when they're out there? What is it they're doing differently? Okay, so so number one, if you look at industrial farming, it's typically a monocrop. Won't even get into whether it's GMO or not, but it's a mono. I'm growing corn. I'm growing alfalfa. I'm growing chickens. It's a monocrop. Um, uh, you know, walk into a forest anywhere in the world and find only one kind of thing growing. That's not how nature works. So that's number one. You can't have a monocrop. It will kill the soil. Plants feed each other nutrients. So you can't do that. Uh, that's number one. Number two, as I said, if you pour chemicals on the land, you will kill the things that make the land productive, which means like a heroin addict, you need more and more and more of these chemicals you know, practically every year to maintain your yield. So, so that's expensive for farmers and harmful to, to the planet and to humans. The, 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 the third crime, if you will, against nature here is that we're taking the living ecosystem skin of the planet, the soil, and we're churning it up and we're ripping the entire latticework of life. So everything in there dies and that carbon goes up, making the problem worse. So that's, that's the front end of it, the industrial farming industry. We haven't gotten into the feedlots and, and things like that, which is another heinous way of growing food for all the reasons we need to change. So let's look at the opposite side. So what would I do if I'm a farmer, and I've been growing it that way, not blaming them. This is what they've been taught. This is what's been handed down by their father. Use this chemical. It'll produce this yield. Get this tractor. Turn this up. You can, you can harvest. You can plant. You don't even have to sit on the tractor anymore. You can program it from your living room, and it'll work with GPS. So, so 
this is what they have been taught, even the small stakeholder farmers in Africa and South America. So if you go to these farmers and you say, we're going to help you restore the health of your soil, and you do that in a number of ways. Uh, first and foremost, you have to analyze, so what's the condition of the soil? What are you lacking? What do we have to build back up? Is it potassium? Is it nitrogen? Is it this? Is it this? And you create a compost that will do it. Literally, a compost, and 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 there are there there's amazing work going on with composting right now that where the efficiency of that is going from year to year, and you put it on. In many cases, you only need to apply it once, sometimes maybe more than once, and the land starts to restore itself. The soil starts to come back to life. So, what does that mean? Typically, what it means is. And it could be a couple of years before the soil is truly healthy. But that's all, a couple of years. And, and, and I should point out, there are times where there is a yield decrease on average of about 5% during that period. And it's very important that we cover that gap for farmers because they're, they're all broke right now. It's the highest incidence of suicide of any uh, industry right now. And so as the soil comes back, two things happen. It's producing its own uh, inputs of, of, of nitrogen and potassium and, and things like that. So you don't have to add it anymore. So your input costs are going down. I don't have to buy those bags of chemicals anymore. Nature is providing them for free. There's another thing that happens. The, the restoration of soil turn soil back into a water sponge. We all know what humus is when you see it in the dirt, the white things. Those are sponges. That's where soil holds on to water, right? So that it's sort of an internal drip system, if you will, for the soil. And that disappears when soil's dead. When you restore soil, that comes back in this number. For every 1% of carbon that you put back in that soil, you will store 25 thousand gallons of water and the carbon you're putting back in now the uh, carbon you're putting back in is the is the compost that's the carbon well is yes well initially that's the carbon but then eventually it's the carbon from the atmosphere that comes through photosynthesis but for every one percent so you may add one percent the first year and one percent for the next five years some of this is coming down from the atmosphere. For every 1% increase, you will increase the water storage per acre by about 25,000 gallons. So if you're a farmer, now your input costs have gone down. Let's talk about your irrigation costs. If you have 25,000 gallons less that you need for every single acre, what does that do to to the, the cost, what does that do to the pressure on the fresh water supply? And by the way, let's, let's not forget that when you have soil that's dead, it's got nothing but chemicals in it, and it rains or you irrigate it, it washes that topsoil away, and we'll get to that in a second, critical part of what's going on on the planet. But it washes the topsoil away into our lakes and streams, carrying all of those chemicals. And that's why our lakes and streams and and waterways are as polluted as they are. It's, it's mostly agricultural runoff, which is why if you look at the Chesapeake Bay or the Baltic Sea or these massive 
critically important water uh, waterways are now restoring the soil around it to clean it. They've realized that's the single biggest problem is the chemicals from agriculture. So, so one quick thing about topsoil. We are all, every human being on earth is dependent on that little bit of topsoil. And we have, according to the United Nations at this point, I think we're, we have 53 years of topsoil left at the rate at which we're destroying it. And let me tell you how they phrased it. They, they, they said we have 53, they actually said 60, but it was seven years ago. They said we have 60 harvests left and we won't be able to grow food anymore. We're talking about regrowing that topsoil, saving what we have and regrowing it. And by the way, there are certain parts of the world like the United Kingdom that have figured out they have 25 years of topsoil left. So what are we gonna do? So we have to restore it. If you want food security, we have to restore it. So I'm not a scientist, and I'm just getting my head around this issue. Uh, so, you know, I can't, I don't know whether everything you're saying is right or wrong, but certainly from what I've been able to look at, this seems a no-brainer that topsoil has to be renewed, brought back to life, made healthy. Uh, from what I've read, uh, there's no doubt that it, there's a certain amount of carbon capture that takes place when the soil is revitalized. Um, so the fact that it needs to be done, I think is without question from what I have been able to determine, um, the question, there are some questions and, and it doesn't change the fact that it needs to be done is that, is this some kind of silver bullet in terms of the climate crisis? And there, there's some debate, uh, is this really going to be enough carbon capture to change the equation? Uh, my personal opinion is it don't matter if it's a silver bullet or not a silver bullet. It needs to be done for a whole range of reasons. And it's going to be better whether it's the silver bullet or not. It's it's it's, it's a bullet. And we don't have a lot of bullets right now. Um, but digging into it a bit, it, it seems to me there is a question here. And there's this is a piece of this where there is some debate. And it gets to what you use to restore the soil with. So when you say compost, um, I'm assuming you're meaning vegetation, food that is human, human garbage and so on, uh, typical making of compost, which most major cities are, are doing or at least supposedly doing now. And so in, we are already generating a fair amount of compost and could generate a lot more. Um, but there's also in, in, in models of regenerative agriculture, as I learned this morning, uh, some of the models depend on the use of grass-fed cattle. Uh, now, I understand there's a logic to it that you're not going to get people off uh, beef and other meat products overnight any faster than you're going to get the world off fossil fuel overnight. So, as again, even if it's considered a transition, um, it's better to have grass-fed cattle than the industrial way cattle are raised now because it reduces uh, the methane, the cow farts, significantly. And in regenerative agriculture, cows kick the dirt around, which without tilling the soil is, less, is not destructive in the way you were describing earlier, that they move stuff around without killing the microbes and other things that are necessary 
for healthy soil. But there are some studies, one from Oxford, another one from a university in Sweden, which say that if you think this is a silver bullet, it's not because even grass-fed cattle emit more methane than they put into the ground. And so, so it's like after looking at it myself, it's, it's, it seems to me you come to the conclusion, well, right now grass-fed cattle is a hell of a lot better than the industrial alternative, but we do have to look at phasing it out. And then, then it becomes what? About a creation of much more compost. I mean, am I getting the argument here? Um, yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, I think, all of these are valid comments and things that we should be looking at. Uh, a, a couple of responses, and I, and I want to preface this, and I think this is really important before I say strongly some of the things I'm going to say. I don't eat beef. Uh, as I said, I used to run the advertising for McDonald's and tried to get the whole world to eat beef. And then I... I I realize, wait a minute, beef is destroying the planet. It's causing climate change. You have to all stop eating beef. And just to show how progress can be very messy, now I believe, and there's a wonderful book called Cows Save the Planet by Judith Schwartz. Highly recommend you read it. It will explain why we need ruminants right now. We need ruminants on the land to restore the land so the planet can be healthy. We don't restore that soil, it's game over for, for all kinds of reasons we've talked about. So so you have to have animals on it. You don't have to eat the animals if you don't want. That's fine. You know, it, it was a hundred years ago that we had four hundred million bison on the Great Plains. And the and the topsoil was over a hundred inches deep. It couldn't have been more bountiful. The Lakota Indians would talk about the fact they would sit up on the hill when the bison went by, when they were moving through, and it took Four days, four suns and four moons for the herd to pass. There were so many animals. Now there's a couple of million and the soil is this deep. So, so we need those animals. They, they have a critical role in nature. It, it, again, you don't want to eat them. That's fine. But we still have to figure out a way to restore the soil and let, let nature maintain it. But if you don't eat them... Maybe that actually is part of the solution because then, then you, because then you don't need so many of them because it's probably a quantitative issue too. That that if you have, you know, if you're not producing in these massive quantities because the big meat appetite. And I gotta say, I'm a meat eater too. And I, the more I learn about this, the more hypocritical I am. So I'm gonna have to do something about it because I figure chickens okay, but it turns out chickens are a problem too. Uh, but but maybe it is a maybe it is a quantitative issue here that you could if you have way less of them you could do what the soil needs, but without having the quantity that creates so much methane. So so first of all, if you're eating grass fed, grass finished beef, and that's really important, and you should ask that if it's grass finished, you're you're helping the planet. If it's grass fed and finished with grain grown horribly, then you're probably net damaging things. But I, I look, I really believe in the importance of animals on the one hand. On the other hand, as I said, I don't eat beef and I don't eat beef for health reasons. I don't, you know, and I, uh, for me, I feel better when I don't eat it. Uh, it's, it's, it's Hanukkah this weekend and I will be at my in-laws doing my one 
big brisket eat, so I, I haven't given it up forever. I love beef, but it's a very inefficient food. And, and to me, that's almost uh, criminal. If we're going to raise cows the way we raise them and use the diminishing resources of water and, and cut down forests so that we can graze and, or burn down forests so they can graze on them, uh, that's, that's unacceptable. We can't do that. So I'm not sitting here advocating replacing those, those you know, hundreds of millions of bison or caribou or you know, wildebeest with, with cows. I don't think that solves the problem. I don't think uh, giving a Western diet to the whole world and having everybody increase the amount of beef that we're eating is a real smart move right now. You know, I don't. I think you're right. I think we have to learn the right balance at which to incorporate the different food elements into our diet from a health standpoint, from an environmental standpoint. So I think you're a hundred percent correct. The the bigger question you 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 ask which is you know does it make a difference if you graze them in a way that mirrors nature and the answer is unequivocally yes it does so if you look at cattle that are grazed the same way those herds are moved in nature where where nature has a way to move a herd every couple of days it you know, the, the, the cows will move into an area, they eat the crops, they start defecating, the flies come, the flies start stinging the cows, so they move. This is really important, or predators come, and they move. And, and they move so that they don't eat the plants to death, so that they take a plant from here to here, and then they move on to where there's brand new, healthy, delicious stuff over there, and these grow back. And as they grow back, what is that? That's carbon. It's coming from up there and going into the plant and enabling it to grow big again. So, so that's what we're talking about. So if you replicate nature, if you keep them in herds, if you move them, tight herds, not the way we do it now where we throw a bunch of cows on a hill and there's two over here and three over here. If you think about when you see a herd of animals in nature, they are tightly packed, but they move frequently. So if you do that, same thing happens that I talked about with crops. The land comes Back. Let's assume this all works, whether it's compost, compost plus animals. Let's assume this works and it's effective to a large extent, even if it's only to some extent. Clearly, as far as I can make out, it's necessary. But is there any way you see this happening through market forces? Because I don't see this happening without government regulation. You need to have government policy to transform the agribusiness, because if it's based on market forces, there's no way there's short-term profit in doing what you're talking about. Okay, okay. Well, I'm going to prove it by the end of this. So, so the reason we started the Carbon Underground is not because there was a great solution out there for, for a big problem. There's a lot of those that don't go anywhere. We all know this. The reason we got excited, Tom and I come from the business world, and, and we know what the business benefits are of doing this. So when we walk into a General Mills or a McDonald's or a Unilever or a Danone, we don't talk about climate change. We talk about the crumbling front end of your supply chain, right? Agriculture. We talk about the litigation that can come from causing climate change knowingly, right? Every public company in America has to has to publicly talk about what their risk to climate change is. And if they don't do it, they can get sued. 
So there's the litigation. We talk about the decline of the ability to predict where you're going to get your products from. If the yields are going down, if climate change is causing droughts and floods, where am I going to get my soybeans? How much are they going to cost me? It's incredibly disruptive to a $7.7 trillion a year industry. So we walk in there and say, what if we can solve some of these problems for you? And oh, by the way, if you're a consumer brand, ask your marketing folks, because we're hopefully talking to the CEOs, the C-suite folks, but ask your marketing folks how they would like to go out there and say that their brand is helping to reverse climate change. You know, and so so from a very practical business reason, and that it, it makes sense to do this. And that's why every one of those companies and hundreds more very large companies, thousands of smaller food companies around the world are starting to transition. Mars Corporation just just committed a billion dollars to commit to regenerative agriculture. They're not doing that to be a, a, a good guy. It's not what they're doing. This is about business. So, so our hope comes from the fact that this is going to motivate businesses to do the right thing. When you know you mentioned we, we work in Thailand, we went into Thailand, which has 35 million farmers, and we said to them, "Your soil's dying." They knew it. Your, your farmers are suffering. They're the sixth largest nation in, at exporting uh, uh, agricultural project products. So, so we said to them, "If you restore your land." The business demand that's out there right now for regenerative products that is not being fulfilled because there's so little supply because this is a brand new way to grow food. It's an old way, new again. But, but if you do that, these companies will come and support it and become a buyer. If they don't, you shouldn't work with us. And right now, we have millions of dollars worth of purchase orders coming in already. We're working in mung beans and cacao and sugarcane and potatoes and coffee, and it's for business reasons. And, and we said to the Thai government, if you want to be the leader, you have to do something no government has ever done. You have to take some responsibility for making it happen. And what that means in our vision is you pay for the training and education of your farmers. There's only a few minutes I want to get to our bet. It's a $100 bet, so a significant amount of money, at least okay. to me. And, and the bet is this. You're saying yeah. that market forces are going to defeat the lobbying power of Monsanto and, and transform American and global agriculture in the time frame that we have, which is urgent, which is the window closing, as we agreed on front. And my side of the bet is that ain't happening without government regulation and intervention, <clears throat> and it's needed urgently. So uh, you agree that's the that's the, the debate, the defeat of Monsanto. Well, if, if, if I am willing to take the debate that corporations will 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 put forth their clout to get governments to support this shift, yes. Am I willing to take? A bet saying it's going to work. We're going to scale it fast enough before the window closes. No, unfortunately, I don't. I'm not betting that we're going to have such a government. That's another bet. But I'm betting without such a government, it's never going to happen better. in a time frame we need. That we need yeah. government 
regulation intervention. And frankly, if you're right that the market, the there are market economics, not good for Monsanto, but maybe it's good for some other sectors of agribusiness. Well, that makes it more possible to get such government regulation. But there's, but there's good, but 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 I think I'm getting my hundred bucks. Well, <laughs> I'm willing to go double or nothing right now. I, I I'm gonna. I'll tell you right now, if General Mills or Unilever wants to grow their food without chemicals, they're going to grow their food without chemicals. And, and I will, I'll give a perfect example. Right now, because of lobbying, crop insurance, the rates you pay, where a farmer pays is, is often based on how many chemicals they use in their land. That is crumbling right now at a state-by-state level. There are alternatives that are, that are basing it on how you're treating your soil instead of how you're mistreating your soil. So that's a market force and that's a government and not always, but, but often a government support for farmers. So it's changing. Are we going to get there fast enough? That's the existential. Well, that's the bet. That's the, that's my hundred bucks. So we'll see. So we're betting that we reverse climate change. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm betting that agribusiness at a scale doesn't drop chemicals and Monsanto and, and all the rest that essentially stops putting chemicals into the soil that they won't do it just based on market force forces in the time frame needed. It's going to require government essentially saying these things are illegal. You can't put this in the soil anymore. I don't disagree. And governments are doing that. Our government is not doing that, but other governments. Oh, so I already made my hundred bucks. So, no, 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 no. It wasn't based on today. Well, or I made mine. Governments are doing it. But all right, we'll, no, well, uh, all right, we'll see. We'll fight this out <laughs> later. Thanks for joining us, Larry. A pleasure to be with you. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Don't forget the matching grant campaign and the, donate button at the top of the webpage at theanalysis.news. And thanks for joining us.